Last week we saw Jesus' arrest and on either side of his arrest Judas's betrayal and Peter's failed bravado. In the midst of people who were trying to be in control, Jesus stepped forward and took charge. He handed himself over to the soldiers and ensured that his disciples went free. We saw how he was confident in his Father's plan, knowing that he was walking in full obedience to the Father. Again here, in this passage, we can see the hand of the Father behind uh, what on the surface seems like human political manoeuvrings. Jesus is brought before Annas. He will be in a moment. Brought before Annas, uh, who was called the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. We might wonder why John gives us this information. It might feel a little bit irrelevant to what's happening, but he's highlighting for us what was actually the mess that was the priestly system at the time. Annas was the high priest from 6 BC to 12, uh, sorry, 15 AD, uh, when he was then removed from that position by the Roman governor, uh, Pontius Pilate's predecessor. The problem was that according to the law of Moses, the high priest's position is supposed to be held for life, only ended by death. So many of the Jews were unhappy with this. They would have considered Annas to be still the true high priest. All up, five of Annas's sons and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, took on the role over the following five decades. But while he was still alive, Annas was still pulling the strings in the background. Now, Caiaphas, uh, he was high priest at the time, had managed to form a, a good relationship with the Romans uh, which is probably why it was a cohort of Roman soldiers that were sent to arrest Jesus. And as uh, verse 14 tells us, Caiaphas had, had actually initiated or proposed the plan to get rid of Jesus to nip this movement in the, blood, in the, the bud. Uh, we see in John chapter 11, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, this is to the Sanhedrin, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now what Caiaphas thought he was saying was, it's better for this one troublemaker to be gotten rid of before this movement grows into a revolution and we all get killed by the Romans. In other words, for political reasons, Jesus must die. But what he didn't realise that he was actually saying was a prophecy that Jesus was the servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah, 
whose death wouldn't be a political strategy but would be an atoning death for the Jews and for people from all nations. Jesus must die for the people because that's the Father's plan and the schemes of evil people will always be subservient to that plan. So Jesus is brought before this dysfunctional at the time priestly institution. Annas was theoretically the legitimate high priest but unable to function in the role while the one in the role was wielding technically illegitimate power. The Jews would have been debating over who was the true high priest, not realising that both Annas and Caiaphas and all that followed them had actually just been made obsolete by this one standing in their midst. With the arrival of Jesus, the whole line of priests that had started with Aaron had come to an end because he was that which they all foreshadowed. Jesus' unique high priestly role is about to go into action as he offers himself for a once and for all sacrifice, doing away with the need for that repeated animal sacrificial system and for all of the priests. Now, as you notice, the action in this passage switches back and forth between Jesus inside the house and Peter outside in the courtyard, which is why we had the Bible reading done in that way. John wants us to see that these two scenes are actually happening at the same time. So, before we hear what Jesus has to say for himself, we're taken then to see what Peter has to say for himself after that bold claim that he would lay down his life for Jesus and his foolish actions in the garden that nearly got him killed if Jesus hadn't intervened and secured his safety. So Peter isn't alone. There's another disciple. This disciple isn't, isn't named, but we're told he has connections with the high priest. We don't know what those connections were. We have good reason for believing that this disciple is John, the Gospel writer. John refers to himself a number of times in his Gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And here, and in one other place, just as another disciple. It wasn't unheard of uh, for people writing something to include themselves in the account in this way without giving their name because the focus is not actually on them, it's on the one that they're writing about. And some of the details of what happens in this passage, such as the reference to a charcoal fire uh, and the fact that it was a female servant at the door, speak of someone who's actually giving an eyewitness account. And the way that the high priest's house was laid up, and we know that house, it's still there in ruins, but we know it from archaeology, would have meant that those who were in the courtyard could actually see and hear what was happening in the house and vice versa. And that's why John can then report on what both Peter and Jesus are saying. It also explains why in Luke's Gospel, 
We're told that the moment that Jesus, that Peter denies Jesus for the third time, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Would have been through the doorway into the courtyard. So Peter's first denial, he thinks, is what gets him into the courtyard. The way the servant girl poses the question uh, in that negative way implies disdain or even cynicism. She's already had to let one of the disciples in, John. Now here's another one. But if she's already identified John and allowed him in, why does Peter think he has to hide his identity? Jesus had already made sure that his disciples would not be arrested. But of course, it's easy for us to say that as we look at the story objectively, isn't it? Fear is a very effective way of driving out logical thinking. Peter's just had the whole world turned upside down for him. The rug pulled out from under his feet. Just a few hours earlier, he'd sworn his allegiance to Jesus. Then in the garden, his pathetic attempt to stop Jesus' arrest had been stopped by Jesus himself. Jesus had prevented Peter from laying down his life for him, the very thing that on a number of occasions he'd taught his disciples that they should ultimately be prepared to do. And why has Peter followed Jesus with John? We don't know, although we do, don't we? Of course we do, because this is not just a random collection of events. It's not just a cause and effect chain reaction. This is a step-by-step unfolding of the Father's foreordained plan, which includes Peter's denial of Jesus. Maybe Peter himself, if we asked him on the spot, what are you doing here, wouldn't have been able to tell us. Maybe he felt he'd just been carried along by the flow of events or by the unseen hand of God. Maybe he thought there might still be an opportunity to rescue Jesus. Or maybe he realised this is the end of everything and he wanted to see it through to the bitter end. Whatever his motives, the motives of God were bigger. And as we'll see in a moment, they were so that God himself would ultimately receive the glory. Now, I said last week that we shouldn't stand in judgement over Peter. Not because Peter can be excused for his denial because he was under such great fearful pressure, but because you and I are no better than he. Given the same circumstances, I would have made the same response. I would have given in to fear at all costs to save my own skin. Now, fear in itself is not sin. The scriptures tell us repeatedly to fear God and it uses the same word for fear, fear God, as it does when it speaks of other fears like fears of our enemies or fear of death. It's the same word. We should give thanks to God that we are able to feel fear because That's what stops us from running across a busy highway or going too close to the edge of a cliff. 
Fear is good when the danger is real. Even if the danger is a holy God, a consuming fire, and we're fearful because we are creatures and sinful creatures. What becomes sinful, though, is how we respond to fear and where we turn to rest on or try to try to alleviate our fear. Now, John says in his first letter, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, there's one big fear that stands behind all of our other fears and the way that we respond to that will often determine the way we respond to the smaller fears. It's the fear of judgement. The fear that when we stand before our Creator and Judge, we will be condemned. That's the fear that drives our fear of death. And then the fear of death then drives all other fears. Because if we think about it, every fear, whether it's fear of pain and suffering, fear of failure, fear of shame, fear of the bully in the schoolyard or the workplace, fear of spiders, they're all simply a subset of the fear of death and judgment. Now when we're confronted with all these other fears, we try to fix them by dealing with them directly or trying to identify the various reasons that might be behind them. But if the root and source of all of our fears is the fear of judgment that comes after death, then fear needs to be attacked at the source. The tree needs to be cut down at the roots, so to speak. That's why knowing that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone, on the basis of Jesus' atoning death alone, is so vital. God's justification of us by grace is like a poison that when injected into the roots of the tree of fear will eventually kill the whole tree right up to the twigs and the leaves. Well, what's all that got to do with Peter? Well, it's pretty clear that he's acting out of fear. Exactly what was going through his head, what his specific fears were, we can't say for sure, but we we can say for sure that he didn't yet understand the cross and why it was that the Christ had to go and suffer and die. He didn't yet realise his status and acceptance before God and that it was based not on his own actions, not on his attempt at love by laying down his life for Jesus, but solely on the actions of Jesus and his love for laying down his life for him. He hadn't yet seen that perfect love that casts out all fear. He hadn't yet seen that perfect love is not his love for Jesus, but Jesus' perfect love for him. John says in 
1 John 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So until he sees this, fear will overcome love. Until, he's, until we see this, all of our various fears will overcome our love. We have no chance of laying down our lives for Jesus or for one another until we have been recipients of that great love that caused him to lay down his life for us. Next, we're taken back inside where we see another man being questioned at the same time, Jesus by Annas, the high priest. See the stark contrast between Peter and Jesus. For Jesus, there is no fear because he knows he's walking perfectly in step with his father's plan. He knows that he is the father's beloved son, that his father is well pleased with him. It doesn't mean that he wasn't deeply troubled in his spirit about the suffering he was about to face, but nowhere in any of the accounts of Jesus' suffering is he described as being fearful. He knew the perfect love of the Father and so there was no room for fear. So while Peter outside cowers before his questioners and denies everything, Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. He knows that what's happening is a miscarriage of justice according to the law. His trial has been held at night, which isn't allowed. He's been interrogated by someone who is not officially the high priest. It's in a private home, not in an official meeting place. And they should have been interrogating witnesses, not him. The proper order was the witnesses for the defendant, in, in favour of the defendant, followed by the witnesses against the defendant and only then could the defendant themselves be interrogated. So Jesus himself has to call on witnesses. Verse 21, ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Now there is a popular misunderstanding by some that Jesus just said nothing in his trial. Clearly that's not the case. He's speaking here. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. doesn't mean that Jesus uh, didn't open his mouth at all. It means he didn't open his mouth to defend himself, not that he never spoke. He isn't interested in defending himself because he's not here for himself, but for those whom he came to save. He's saying this in the context, remember, of what's happening at this very moment, just outside. What Jesus could have done here at this moment is pointed to the door and said, ask those two out in the courtyard, Peter and John. There's the two witnesses that you could take that the law requires you to take in order to press charges against me. They're my disciples. They've been with me from 
day one. Technically speaking, Peter and John were the witnesses that Jesus needed, the witnesses that should have stood up in his defence. But instead of speaking up, what are they doing? Peter is denying that he never knew him. John is just remaining silent. Some uh, modern Bible scholars suggest that there's a competitiveness between John and Peter and that John tries to paint himself in a better light in his Gospel than Peter in the Gospel. But John's silent presence there was really no better than Peter's denial. Peter may have spoken in denial, but John failed to speak in defence. So I believe John's including himself here not to make himself look better, but to actually implicate himself in the disciples who deserted Jesus. And maybe that's why when he normally describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, here he's just another disciple. If there was any point in John's journey as a disciple when he might have reason to doubt Jesus' love for him, it would be here where his silence doesn't deserve it. Now Jesus knows this, but Jesus still does not implicate Peter and John. They're proving to be the worst of friends, but he's still there to lay down his life for them. At the point where they least deserve his love, his love for them stands firm. Now Jesus' refusal to acknowledge this miscarriage of justice results in him being struck. The word means literally slapped in the face. Remember what Jesus taught? Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He's simply practising what he preached. Slapping someone on the face in that culture was a way that someone in a superior position would discipline and shame someone in an inferior position, a master and a slave, for example. Someone who had dared to try and rise above their rank. It was a way of putting them in their place, of humiliating them. But here's the thing. You cannot humiliate a person who has already humbled themselves. Jesus had willingly humbled himself and become a servant, a slave, from the moment he entered this world and took on human flesh and blood. He'd come not to be served but to serve. He wasn't here before Annas as a rebel who needed to be crushed and put in his place because he had already willingly handed himself over to them. He'd already willingly submitted to their evil and corrupt schemes. It was his deliberate intention to face the shame of an unjust trial, to face false accusations, mocking and reviling. All of that is part of the suffering that Jesus came to bear. See, Jesus' suffering was not just the six hours he was hanging on the cross, but everything that happened to him from the moment of his arrest in the garden onwards, his betrayal, abandonment and denial by friends, being handed over to his enemies, both Jewish and Gentile, all of that combined with his physical death on the cross and his burial 
is what he was referring to when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In all of it, he was willingly bearing on his shoulders the kind of mistreatment, the forsakenness that a sinner deserves, including being slapped on the face. So he doesn't retaliate, as you might expect from someone who's a rebel, and he doesn't grovel as would be expected from someone who has been humiliated, but he simply speaks the truth. If I have sinned, I deserve to be punished for my guilt. If I haven't sinned, then the guilty one is he who punishes me without a cause, to paraphrase his words. See, he's not defending himself. He's not saying, he's not even saying I'm innocent. He's simply speaking the truth and the truth speaks for itself. Again, now we're taken to the scene outside. From Jesus' clear statement of the truth to Peter's denial of the truth. The contrast between Jesus and Peter is even more stark. We see Peter's fears rise and his sinful response to his fears, they become devastating and damning. Unlike the first time, John here describes Peter's words as denial. Not only is he confirming Jesus' prediction, but he's reminding us of some other words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. What devastating words. Peter has allowed his fear to take over, to control his actions, and what does he do? He denies Jesus before men. He does the complete opposite of what he pledged. He's denied Jesus before men, and so he deserves to be denied by Jesus before the Father. Now this is the end of our passage. But fortunately for Peter and for us, it's not the end of the story. We will hear plenty more about Peter in John's Gospel, but we're going to skip ahead a bit to probably a bit over a month later, maybe two or three months later. Peter and John find themselves back in the same position, may not have been the exact location, but it was the same situation, in a sense. They were back before the high priest. In Acts, on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Now, what had happened is Peter and John had just been used by God to heal a lame man in the temple courts. That healing drew a crowd and Peter and John preached the gospel to those who had gathered. This led to them being arrested and the next day they're brought before the high priest. I'm sure that for both of them, this would have brought back memories 
of that other night. And just like that night, Peter is called upon to testify. But his response is completely different. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And then verse 13, now when they saw the boldness, is it there? There we are. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognised that they had been with Jesus. We might be excused for thinking this is a, this is a different person to the one we saw on the night of Jesus' arrest. But actually we don't need to be excused because this is a different person. It's a different Peter. Something has so radical has happened to Peter that the Peter we saw on that night has become this Peter that we see on this day. The Peter who denied Jesus at night isn't the Peter who now openly in the daytime identifies with Jesus. And even their captors notice this. They would have been there on that night. They remembered that these two men had been with Jesus that night. So what on earth could have made such a radical change? Well, what happened with the events in between? The cross, the resurrection and Pentecost. The cross where Jesus bore all of the sins of Peter, including his sin of denying his Lord, a a sin that deserved him to be denied by Jesus. The cross where he bore our sins, including the times that we deny Jesus by hiding our faith in the shadows or refusing to speak up when the opportunity comes or or living and speaking in a way that he is discredited instead of honoured. And the resurrection. The resurrection where the great cause of all of our fears death itself was defeated because the judgment we deserved was ended. Peter had seen that it wasn't his pledge of loyalty to Jesus that mattered. What mattered was Jesus' loyalty to him in bearing his sin away, in securing for him a righteousness that came not from within Peter but as a gift of grace from God. So now Peter was free to love Jesus with a true love because he knew that he had been loved with that perfect love of God and that cast out all his fears. And Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down in power, just as Jesus had promised, bringing all of the truths that Jesus had done for him to his heart, filling him with the courage, with the boldness to stand up and testify to Jesus no matter what the consequences will be. Now, it doesn't mean that from this moment on, Peter never felt fear or never responded sinfully to his fears. Just read the book of Galatians and you'll read of an occasion when 
he gave into the temptation to act out of fear of the judgment of other people. But because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because of Pentecost, he had a sure hope. Through the knowledge of his justified status before God, he was able to stand boldly and firmly when the time came to testify, but it also enabled him to stand up in the freedom of forgiveness whenever he failed. I said last week that we need to see ourselves in Peter and see Peter in us. Peter's story enables us to be realistic, to be truthful about our sin, about our empty bravado, about our caving into fear, about our desire for self-preservation that causes us to deny Jesus. And we should also see ourselves in John, who sits back and does nothing when the good that should be done is obvious. In that sense, Peter represents our sins of commission, doing the evil we know we shouldn't do, and John represents our sins of omission, doing the good, not doing the good that we know we should do. We sin in our activity and we sin in our passivity. But these men's stories don't leave us wallowing in our sin or left in despair and hopelessness because it shows us that the death and resurrection of Jesus is more more, much more than just a motivational or inspirational story designed to bolster our moral courage. Jesus has actually accomplished something that is real. The cross is the power of God that takes dead people and makes them alive, that removes the guilt and sin of shame and replaces it with righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It takes those who are cowering in fear and fills them with boldness and the confidence to live a life to the glory of God. So, let us come before the Father with repentance over our sins of commission and omission, acknowledging that if we were in these disciples' shoes we would have done no different, but more so, Let us come to him with faith and confidence and the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins because of the blood of Jesus and with the knowledge that we've been washed clean, we've been made holy by his sacrifice and justified by his resurrection. We've received the gift of the Holy Spirit and we're now filled with power to live for him. Let's pray that that will be the case.